A word of prayer as we remain standing. This from our gospel hymn. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth planted deep in us. Shape and fashion in us in your likeness. Amen. And please be seated. Again, welcome to Christ the King. It's a joy to gather together as a family of God. We are in a sermon series entitled Lessons from the Wilderness. And this morning we come across a great story. And it is a truly great story, true confessions. I didn't know much about the story of Balaam and Balak until I really sat down to study it. Uh, and this great story has a couple of great uh, points for you and me. So what we'll do this morning is simply explain the passage and then apply the passage, making three points of application. To explain the passage, I think best to think of the, uh, the story in terms of its main characters. The first character is Balaam. Uh, Balaam. Who is Balaam? Balaam was the king of the Moabites. Uh, now, a little Old Testament history, Moabites, Canaanites, Hittites, anybody with that last word, ite, uh, behind their name, is usually a bad guy, an enemy of the people of God, and so it is the case of, with the Moabites. They are, they are a historical enemy of the people of God who hinder their journey, and Balak is their king. So, uh, page, page 11 of your sermon your service leaflet, I provide some sermon notes, and you can see the general vicinity of the people of Moab. They are on one side of the Jordan River. They are to the east. Uh, on the west side of the Jordan River is the Promised Land, and so Moab occupies that territory uh, towards, the, towards the east, sort of a wilderness area. And in the, as the story begins, the people of God camp near the Moabite plain. They, are, they camp near uh, the Promised Land, near the Jordan River, the Promised Land on the other side of the Jordan River. So uh, back to our passage. Oh, sorry, let me just I digress from my notes. So the Israelites camp around this area, around Moab. In front of them lies the uh, Promised Land, and behind them lies the wilderness. So take another look again at your map. And uh, this is not the first time the people of God have been in this exact same location. If you were here with us last week, we explored a passage, Numbers chapter 14. And in that passage, God's people were in that same exact place as they are in this passage. Last week, just by way of refresher, last week, God's people were here on one bank of the Jordan River. They were looking across to the Promised Land. Behind them was the wilderness and the slavery in Egypt. In front of them, the land promised to them. And they had a choice, a choice to trust God and push forward in obedience or to doubt God and fall back into the wilderness. And they failed completely. They doubted God. They doubted his promises. And God, justified in his anger, justified in his punishment, said that this generation, this faithless generation, will not enter the promised land. And so for 40 years, God's people have wandered around the wilderness to the east of the Jordan River, again referencing your map. Now, that was Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 22, 40 years have come and gone. Most of the faithless generation have come and gone as well. Miriam, the wife of Moses, she dies. Numbers chapter 20. Aaron, Moses' right-hand man, 
he dies as well. Again, Numbers chapter 20. The 40-year wilderness punishment is coming to a close. And now, in Numbers chapter 22, God's people are right back at that same place where they were 40 years ago. One side of the Jordan River, behind them the wilderness, and Egypt in front of them the promised land. But surprisingly for this story, the, the, the narrative cuts, and God's people, Moses, Aaron, and some of the cast of characters we've been familiar with over this sermon series, they're no longer the focus of this passage. Instead, this king, Moab, this king of Moab, Balak. And Balak is overcome with fear because of the Israelites camping nearby. Verse 4. This horde, meaning the horde of Israelites, is all around us, says, says Balak. And uh, this horde will lick us up like the ox licks the grass of the field. Now that's not an analogy that you and I use, but the Imagery and analogy is clear that Balak is shaking in his boots out of fear for God's people, of God's people, who are camped right beside him. So that's Balak, the king of Moab, a historic enemy of the people of God. Now to Balaam. Balak, in his fear, hatches a plan. And his plan is to send for Balaam and ask Balaam to curse the Israelites. So this is chapter 22, verses 5 and 6. Curse these people. They cover the face of the earth. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them if you curse them, for I know that he who you, Balaam, bless, will be blessed, and he who you, Balaam, curse, will be cursed. So there's Balak's plan. He's going to call on Balaam to curse God's people and enable Balak to then defeat him. Who is Balaam? Well, Balaam is everything that you're not supposed to be from an Old Testament perspective. Uh, witchcraft, divination, sorcery, idolatry, that's what Balaam did, and apparently he did it fairly well. He was paid or offered a, a significant amount of money from Balak to do the thing that he had asked him to do, to curse God. And throughout the story, chapters 22, 23, and 24, Balak repeatedly offers Balaam an increasing amount of money to curse God's people and therefore enable Balak and the Moabites to destroy them. Great plan. What could go wrong? Well, what went wrong with Balak's plan is that God intervened. So throughout the story, Balaam goes to curse God's people, but God intervenes and puts a word of blessing in Balaam's mouth instead of a word of curse. So every time Balaam opens his mouth, he's he says some sort of blessing over the people of God. Perhaps if you know anything of the story of Balaam, you know something of Balaam and the donkey, right? The donkey. How does a donkey factor into the story? Well, on one occasion, Balaam sets off to do the thing that Balak asked, that being cursed the people of God. He sets off on his donkey and an angel of the Lord intervenes with a flaming sword. 
Balaam whips his donkey to try to get the donkey to go where they need to go in order to do the cursing that he wants to do. After being whipped three times, the donkey basically says, look, Balaam, I'm just trying to save your life. There is an angel with a flaming sword right in front of us. Stop whipping me. That's not an exact translation, but that is the basic gist. So poor Balak. Every time he asks Balaam to curse God's people, what comes out is instead of a blessing. He must be tearing his hair out. Even when Balaam attempts to do the thing that he's been asked to do to curse God, uh, an angel of the Lord intervenes and a, tonky, a talking donkey uh, throws him off course. So that's the story. And over 22, 23, 24, these three chapters of Numbers, that is the basic plot of the story. And uh, at, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 25, the story comes to a conclusion. Balak being unsuccessful. Balaam opening his mouth, and every time he does open his mouth, it's for a blessing. And there the story ends. Verse 25, Balaam rose, went back to his place, and Balak rose and went away. And then the story resumes back with Moses and Aaron and some of the cast of characters that you've become familiar with. What's the story doing here? It's kind of a strange story. Is it sort of an Aesop's fable? Now keep in mind, this has nothing to do with the people of God. The people of God are very much in the background for this entire narrative. What does this story say to them. How can this story speak to God's people then? What would it have said to them then? And I think if we answer that question, we can that will enable us to hear God's word for us now. So let's ponder that question. What would that story have meant to those people who first heard it? Keep in mind where the people of God are. They are at the place of their great failure 40 years ago. In front of them, the same promised land, full of great fruit, full of great giants. Behind them, the wilderness. The same question lies in front of them. Will they trust God and move forward in obedience? Will they doubt God and fall back in doubt and uh, disobedience? Their, their fate hung in the balance. What would they choose? Trust and obedience, doubt and disobedience. And this story sits right in that moment. I write in your sermon notes, what the people needed then was an unforgettable word from the Lord, assuring them that the Balaks and the Balaams of this world are under the sovereign control of God. And that is exactly what this story provides. God frustrates the wicked, that is of reference to a common sentiment through the Psalms. And that is exactly what happens in this passage. This passage assures God's people that not only is God with them for their good, but God is also with those who oppose them, frustrating the plans of the wicked. Can you imagine how reassuring this would be for a young Israelite boy as he's going to bed? Mom, tell me the story of when God intervened through a talking donkey and a pagan prophet to protect God's children. God God, tell, Mom, tell me that story. And that is the truth that this passage conveys, that God frustrates the plans of the wicked. So my question for us this morning are, who are the Balaks in your life? 
What are those things that are keeping you awake at night? Maybe they're not explicitly wicked as Balak was, but frustrations, concerns. It's noteworthy that as the Moabites were concerned about the Israelites, the Israelites were concerned about the Moabites. Both were keeping the other awake at night. A little irony in the story. This passage assures you and me that God is sovereign over those things that trouble you. He uses a pagan prophet, Balaam, and a talking donkey to foil the plans of Balak. He has, as the children's song goes, he has the whole world in his hands. That's point one of the story. God frustrates the plans of the wicked. Point number two. It comes this word of, encourage, uh, word of comfort that God frustrates the plans of the wicked. It comes with a word of encouragement. In my family, I often tell my children, don't worry about what's going on with the others, you just do you. Don't worry about your siblings, don't worry about, you just do you. You just focus on what mom and dad said, and you focus on listening to them, and you're gonna be just fine. You just do you. Throughout the wilderness wandering of the people of God, the biggest challenge to the people of God is not external. It's not a lack of food, which they face, not a lack of water, which they face. It's not the Moabites, Hittites, or the other ites. It, the biggest challenge to the happiness of the people of God is always, guess who? The people of God. <laughs> who doubt God's goodness and don't listen to God's will. The biggest challenges that you and I face to, the, to our happiness, to our blessedness under God is very rarely external. Let me share an insight from a friend that reinforces this point. It's a friend who's a pastor in New England. And he pastors in just a very difficult area. Uh, in that area, uh, more so than other areas, just very few people go to church. A very small percentage. Uh, the church was at one point in time, very healthy, very vibrant. Names like Jonathan Edwards and other giants of the faith. That's where they operated, but not so now. The church is quaint if thought of at all. So my friend and I, this was many years ago, and this has stayed with me for about five or six years. We were talking about what happened. How, how did a vibrant community of faith just be, dwindle to nothing? And my friend who pastors there said, you know, the single greatest cause to the decline of the church was not the isms. Everything sounds worse if you put an ism behind it. it wasn't materialism, secularism, hedonism, it wasn't any of the isms. My friend said that the greatest cause for the declining influence of the church was simply the church. The church lost confidence. Its members lost confidence in who they were and what were they, they were called to. And this passage is telling you and me that we have no more to fear the isms of our day than they had to fear the ites, the Hittites, the Canaanites of their day. Israelites, don't worry about the Moabites. You, you just do you. You take the next step a faithful obedience into the promised land. God will take care of the rest. To the church in any area, you don't worry about the isms of your day. Materialism, secularism, hedonism. You just do you. 
You focus on worshiping God and exalting the name of Christ. I'll take care of the rest, says God. To individual Christians, as we confront our Baaliks, you don't worry about the Baaliks in your life, the unreasonable boss, the unreasonable spouse, the unreasonable child, the unhappy situation, the unpromising job. You, you just do you. You listen to God, God's word and respond faithfully. And God is assuring us through this passage that he is going to take care of the rest. Point number one, God frustrates the plans of the wicked. Point number two, because he does, you just do you. Point number three, and I think this is the most encouraging uh, part of the entire passage of Balaam, the entire story. As I've said, Balaam repeatedly blessed when asked to curse. And if you read chapters 22, 23, and 24, you'll discover that most of the blessing is simply a restatement of promises we have heard before. You, God's people, will be great. You will inhabit the land, etc. There, in his last prophecy, in Balaam's last uh, oracle, he says something very odd, something unheard of to this point in Scripture. I've included it for you in your sermon notes. You may want to take a look at it. No longer does Balaam just prophesy that God's people will be blessed and inherit the land. He anticipates not a general blessing, but a specific person. And here's what he says. This is the oracle of him. This is Balaam speaking. This is the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it will crush the head of Moab, and it will break all the sons of Seth. It's not a particular blessing, or not a general blessing over an entire people, but a particular prophecy anticipating one. One who will come, a star who will rise with a scepter in his hand. There's only one person who's ever been referred to as a star, and that is Jesus Christ, who in the book of Revelation refers to himself as the root of the son of David and the bright, bright morning star. It is surprising that as far as I can tell, I think this is one of the most clearest Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, and it comes from the most unlikely source. A pagan witch doctor. But there you have it. And Balaam anticipates that this bright morning star will deal decisively with all the things that trouble the people of God. And Jesus has dealt decisively with all those things that trouble the people of God. Not, not the Moabites. He didn't step on the head of the Moabites, but he did crush the, he, crush the serpent with his heel, as anticipated in Genesis chapter 3. He crushed the head of the serpent. He broke the bonds of the grave. He dismantled the power of sin. He has dealt decisively with all those things that trouble you and me most. And because he did, we can trust him with those things that trouble us now. So this great story teaches us three very important points. Point number one, God is sovereign. He is control, in control of the Baaliks of the world. He uses a pagan prophet and the pagan prophet's donkey to foil his plans. 
God is in control of the Baaliks in your life. Point number two, because God is in control, you, you just do you. Our job, my job, is to listen to God's word attentively and respond faithfully, knowing that God will take care of those things that are out of sight and out of my control. Point number three. What Balaam anticipated from afar, we know and have seen. Jesus, the bright morning star, has taken care of every wicked thing that troubles you and me. Crushed the head of the serpent, the devil. Broke the power of the grave and canceled the debt of sin. He frustrated the plans of the wicked when he rose from the grave on Easter morning. What he did then, he still does today. He still frustrates the plans of the wicked. So you can trust in him.